Well, again, a warm welcome, and we're so glad you're here as we uh, continue in this beautiful worship service this morning on the second Sunday of Lent. Lent, L-E-N-T, not L-I-N-T, a season of 40 days, an ancient word that means lengthening or spring. This season was created by the ancient church as a time of confession and repentance, renewal, and kind of helping us prepare for the coming of Jesus in that sense, uh, in the sense of the resurrected Christ of Easter. But for these 40 days, which reflect Jesus' 40 days and nights in the wilderness, I pray that this season will be a powerful time of God shaping you and me and us as a community during the wilderness experience. You've heard the story read and you've heard some powerful prayers already uh, that include and invite us into this uh, powerful story from Genesis, which is a wilderness, wilderness story. It's a hard story. Uh, coming to us from the Old Testament and certainly reflects kind of the brokenness and challenges and difficult decisions that people often face. Several years ago, almost this time of year, I was at a conference in Sycamore, Illinois, which is about an hour and a half west of Chicagoland. I had gone for a two-day conference and the conference went later than expected, in fact, till 10 p.m. There had been heavy snow and sleet, and some of us were encouraged to stay the night in hotels and not travel back. But I had so much to do, and I had so many things to address the next day, and I thought, it can't be that bad. I'll be okay. And so I jumped into my car and, and scraped off all the ice and got everything ready, and I began the journey. As soon as I got out there on the road, it wasn't too bad. In fact, I stopped at a convenience store and got a, a, a soda and some other things and thought, I'll be fine for this typical hour and 25 minute drive. But once I was out of Sycamore, into the rural areas of Northern Illinois, near Plank Road, things suddenly changed. The road was like glass, people were sliding off, folks weren't paying attention. And all of a sudden, I went from 40 miles per hour to 10 and 15. Farmhouses had big icicles hanging from them, and I could see the glistening ice the whole roadway. This rural county road was not prepared uh, and ready for my coming, anyone else's, and I became panicked. Should I stop? Should I slide off? Should I drive into someone's driveway and live there for the night? I had no idea what to do. The decisions were endless, and I couldn't make them. I just remember praying to God, God, I don't know what to do. I called a couple of friends and they said, James, just stay the course. Stay the course. I don't think I've prayed that much in a long time. I don't think I felt that kind of fear. I had no control. And then it just became an emotional experience connected to other things in my life. Because here in the metaphor of the ice on the road, I couldn't control it. And all of those things I'd been struggling with came to mind. The, the drive was treacherous. People were really having a hard time. But by the time I got to Route 47, the ice had begun to melt and the state highway was a little bit better. And by the time I got to Interstate 90, I could go about 55. And three and a half hours later, I arrived home. I remember walking into my apartment here in Buffalo Grove after that long journey thinking I had not been very smart. I had maybe made the wrong decision or maybe the right decision, but that had been a treacherous, difficult place. I began to think about how an icy road had caused me to reflect more deeply and to look at my life more fully. And I'll never forget that evening, that evening of driving on the ice. Today's story is similar, not identical, but similar. 
It's a powerful story about a woman and her son who face some of the most difficult realities of the wilderness experience. Let me introduce you to a few of those people in the story. There's Abraham, the patriarch, the founder of the whole lineage of Israelites. His wife, Sarah, who was barren and unable to have children. There is certainly Hagar, uh, Sarah's maid and the version from chapter 16, but here almost called a mistress. And then there is her son Ishmael, a few years old, uh, facing the world in such a difficult place. And then there's Isaac, the son that eventually comes to Abraham and Sarah after much waiting and in a miraculous event. So all of these people play. You may have heard their stories before, but here's how the story goes. Abraham and Sarah have been chosen by God to be the mother and father of a chosen people. But soon it became clear that Sarah cannot have children. And in the ancient world, not having children made a woman basically useless. Your status was based on your sons and your husband and your ability to inherit land and all the political and, and economic and spiritual and emotional reasons that Sarah was in a difficult place. In an act of desperation or in an act to try to solve things, Sarah earlier in Genesis decides to offer her maid, a woman who had been captured from Egypt named Hagar, to offer as her substitute to her husband so that at least there would be a son and the land and the lineage and the promise would continue. So Abraham sleeps with Hagar and Hagar becomes pregnant and gives birth to Ishmael. And Ishmael is a word that means God hears or God hears us. And they flourish, though there's a lot of stress and tension. In chapter 16, uh, Hagar kind of taunts Sarah a bit that she's unable to have children. And then Sarah becomes very difficult and mean and hateful to her. And she ends up running away only to return. Later, as you know, after those stories, three messengers visit Abraham and Sarah in the wilderness, in the desert. And there they promise Sarah that she indeed will have a son. And Sarah laughs. Remember, she laughs at them. And, and God basically confronts her about the laughter. But inevitably, Sarah does become pregnant in her old age. And she and Abraham in very old age are then proud parents of a new baby. And they name him Isaac, which means laughter. Makes sense, right? Isaac is just being weaned from his mother's breast, and there's a huge celebration in the family. They're gathered in the backyard with all kinds of food and all kinds of guests, and there's this big celebration that Isaac has been born and he's weaned, and there's now a, a, an heir to this whole promise of God. Sarah just somehow walks out of the house and turns in the yard to the play area, and there is Isaac playing with his half-brother Ishmael, and they're just getting along beautifully. They love each other deeply. They have amazing conversations and as kids. It's just, I, I'm adding to that, but I just imagine they were deeply connected. But instead of seeing that as something joyous, Sarah suddenly realizes that there are two heirs to the promise. She suddenly realizes that as her son builds a relationship with Ishmael, they will partner together and she may lose her place in the midst of this patriarchal society. She may not have standing. She, she may not have full inheritance. There may be all kinds of issues because Isaac is second in line. And so she, in her jealousy and rage and anger, Sarah does an interesting thing. She goes to Abraham and she says, Abraham, I want you to banish Hagar and Ishmael away from here. Make them leave. I don't want them here. What a harsh thing to do. But sometimes in our brokenness and our fear and our jealousy, 
and all of the things of a broken system, that's how we act. And Abraham's heart is broken. Scripture says that he's deeply troubled, but Sarah persists. Inevitably, God speaks uh, to Abraham directly and says, go ahead, I will care for them. They will have their own way. Ishmael will be the ancestor to another line of people. But I can imagine that as Abraham packed up loaves of bread and food, as he packed up this large flask of fresh water and said to Hagar and his son Ishmael, you must leave. I can't imagine that journey. Scripture tells us that they went into the wilderness of Beersheba. And there, after wandering, looking for a place to find a home, there trying to figure it out, it became clear that they were running out of water. It, we are told that, uh, it, that she, she just became very distraught and finally realized that they both were going to die in the wilderness. There was no possibility there was any future for them. And, and all that God had promised her and all that God had promised Abraham would not happen. She was so hurt that she put the baby under a bush and about an arrow's throw, that's a bow shot, she went off to watch her son die because she could not bear to be near him in this tragedy and the heat. And scripture says that she sat at a distance and cried out aloud in grief and she wept endlessly. God heard the boy's cries. It's interesting, not Hagar, but the actual little boy. And God's messenger came and visited Hagar and called to her from heaven and said to her, Hagar, what's wrong? Do not be afraid. God has heard the cries of your son over there. Get up and pick up your son and take him by the hand because I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes. She could not see. Now she could. And she saw a well full of fresh water. And she filled the water flask and gave her son a drink. And God remained always with the boy. He grew up. He lived in the desert. He became an expert archer. He lived in the Paran Desert. And his mother found a wife for him in Egypt. Ishmael is later to be the kind of father of Islam. It's this interesting shared heritage that we have together with Abraham. I love this story and I hate it. It's a terrible story. It's about jealousy and sending people in the wilderness. But it's in the wilderness where all seems lost, just like on that road in the middle of nowhere with an ice storm. What do we do, God? How are we going to survive? And at some point, almost wanting to drive off the road and give up and say there's no possibility. But in the midst of crying and tears and uncertainty, God speaks to us directly and says, James, Hagar, whoever you are, there is an opportunity. It's not necessarily the opportunity you expected. It's not necessarily the life that you had planned out yourself. But there is an opportunity for you to be restored, to find a well, to drink fresh water, to find a new legacy, to become a bow hunter and to be the father of a nation and to establish something amazing and grace-filled. This story is interesting because you would think that in the Bible, if you're trying to show that Isaac is the, the heir to all, you would not let this story get in, right? Scholars are amazed that both the story in Genesis 16 and in 21 are there to remind the people of Israel that there is another part of their story, a broken story, a redemptive story a relational story to people that are different from them. And in fact, those on the very edges of life, those who have been expelled from the mainstream of society, 
God is going to call out to them in the wilderness. God is going to call out to them and restore and renew and redeem their lives, not only through them and the miracles of a, a well, but also in the miracles of our relationships together. It's in the wilderness, friends, the Paran wilderness, the wilderness of Beersheba, or the wilderness of a road in the middle of DeKalb County, or the wilderness of a pandemic, or the wilderness of evil, or the wilderness of death, or racism, or whatever it may be. We could become hopeless and put someone under a bush and say, it's all over. But God speaks to you and me and says, it's not. There is a possibility, even in the midst of all the questions and all the complexities. As you know, my dad's been ill, and recently we've had to have some hard conversations, and I, I have to tell you, they're hard ones. They're just hard conversations. Nothing's easy, nothing's clear, but together, my brother and sister and mother and I have been able to have the conversations that are important to where we are today. And then there are also just opportunities that present themselves. Today I was on a conference call, um, and it was a call that was a part of uh, learning and so forth. This was actually on Thursday. And um, there was a story about a girl who was really struggling in the pandemic and feeling alone and, and didn't like being isolated and missed school and all the things that seem hopeless, right? Many of us have been there. Amen. But the children's minister at their church suggested to the children and especially to her, what would it mean for you to write notes to people you don't know? And so she made some suggestions, some elderly people in their congregation, the nurses at the local hospital, the firefighters at the fire station. And this young girl in Kansas City began to write notes. They're simple notes, they're beautiful notes, but she wrote these notes. And she began with just a few, and then it became 10, and then it became many. And even today, this young girl, fourth grade, is writing a note every day to someone sometimes 10 and 12 notes a week. In the wilderness, God shaped her to be a sign of hope to others. She didn't have to do something amazingly miraculous or buy a billboard or shoot off fireworks or do whatever. Just the simple notes were a sign of refreshing water in the midst of a barren desert. Friends, in this wilderness journey, God is calling you and me and us together. It's not just a personal journey. Lent is a corporate journey. Lent is about all of us together. Lent is about the church being faithful in repentance, renewal, and service. If we are followers of Jesus, we live into that wilderness. We acknowledge the tough situations. We embrace the hard questions. We struggle and we cry and we weep and we question and we doubt. But ultimately, we hear God's word to us. There is a way. May that be true for you in this season of Lent. Wilderness, where God shapes us.